and welcome to Queers on Film, a queer movie discussion podcast. For the purposes of this podcast, a film is considered queer if it features a prominent queer character, can be viewed through a queer lens, or is particularly important to the queer journey or identity of my weekly guest. My name is Kat Kingsley, and I use they-them pronouns, and this week, I am joined by the lovely Stefan. Hi, I'm Stefan, and I use he-him pronouns. Thanks for joining me, Stefan. I was so excited when you said you wanted to be on this. I am very excited to be on it, so thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, for the listener, Stefan is my real-life friend in, like, real human space. We actually watched this movie together just now. And are sitting next to each other, so it's been really lovely. It's been lovely crying next to yeah, you. Yeah, we, we cried, we danced. We did dance. Uh, because this week we were uh, watching A Single Man, directed by Tom Ford, uh, which is honestly one of my all-time favorite movies. It's one of my, it's my top three. Yeah, your top three. Oh, yeah, along with, wait, let me see if I remember. Oh, fuck. Is it Sto- Stoker? Yes, yes. yes. Park Chan Wook. Yeah, Stoker, and then the third one is Nebulous. It's just Nebulous. It It changes all the time. I don't blame you. I don't know if I could list my top ten truly, but I do feel like a single man is probably in it. It was really good to go back to it today, because I feel like it's been a while since I've seen it. It's been a minute for me, too. There was a time period where I was watching it a lot. Like, I was constantly showing it to people, but (laughs) it's honestly been, like, yeah, it's been a minute. I I texted uh, my partner during it, and I was just like, yeah, I kind of forgot just how good it is. Yeah. But uh, why is that? Why you? Why did you choose it for this particular podcast, though? Honestly, I did want to revisit it. It was a movie I watched in college and undergrad, mm-hmm. and um, you know, like I, like I told you before, the aesthetic really um stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I found out that it was a film about gay men, um, you know, I was like, hey, that's me. That's you know, I feel as if this is a film. Um, well, you wouldn't guess by the trailer, but. I've you know, when I was watching the movie, mm-hmm. I felt it was um, directed towards me. Mm-hmm. Directed towards you? Yeah. like I haven't heard you say that before. Why? Yeah. Um, just because of my personal circumstance, I guess. Um, I I was attracted to an older man who had lost someone who was close to him. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I felt kind of like Kenny in this movie. Oh, you yeah. felt you're the Nichols hole? Yeah. Better acted, though. Well, yeah, because it was real life. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's interesting. I, yeah, I can't say that I related to any portion of this in that kind of direct way, but mm-hmm. yeah, I guess we should maybe tell people what it's about before we talk about it too much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure people are like, who's Kenny? Yeah, especially if you're watching the trailer. Uh, so uh, we actually just watched the trailer because I truly couldn't remember what it was like. And the trailer of the film, if that's what, if you looked it up ahead of time, uh, basically just looks like i don't know it, i mean you could read it almost any way like mm-hmm. it gives no indication of the type of story that's going to be told to you it just is like kind of intense music and colin firth looking like ill kind of cut in between a bunch of various images of him like kissing julianne Moore and mm-hmm. like looking at nicholas holt and looking at matthew good and like existing in the world and uh it seems like a. It seems like it's going to be like an intense drama, which so. is not the vibe. <laughs> it's not the yeah. It's not like this like fast paced like um like oh like mystery kind of drama that I think it's portrayed as. It's actually like a very aesthetic and often soft kind of beautiful and very like uh, understated. Mm-hmm. I would say film about uh, Colin Firth's character uh, George Falconer. 
who has lost his partner of 16 years, Jim, who died in a car accident. And this takes place in 1962, uh, back when uh, they couldn't be very open. Um, You know, the family, they show him get a phone call um, after uh, Jim, played by, did I ever say he's portrayed by Matthew Good? Did I say it? Whatever. uh, After his partner Jim died, uh, portrayed by Matthew Good, uh, of his cousin calls, portrayed by John Hamm. (laughs) Just his voice. (laughs) Just his voice. Um, But he calls to let him know and says, you know, the family uh, didn't want to call and didn't know he was calling. And basically, you know, he was calling to be kind and let him know, but also, you know, made it clear that he wasn't welcome at the funeral. And it was this, so it's this very tragic experience that um uh george can't really experience out openly and outwardly even though he's experienced this like very just enormous loss and it's clear at the beginning of the film that he is considering um uh suiciding and he's preparing for that and the whole day is sort of him preparing for that and then also interspersed with these moments of perhaps consideration and um acknowledgement of the beauty of life basically and it has all these different moments you know he has some interesting moments with his best friend charlie who is a woman who he has uh an intimate past with but in an intimate present friendship mm-hmm. um and he also has a lot of moments with his student uh kenny portrayed by nicholas holt who is really seeking out his company maybe is not quite the right word but he's kenny is really persistent in approaching george and um, asking for his time and expressing that he is concerned for him uh and so eventually throughout the you know the film goes on and uh it also shows his past relationship with his partner jim and it being really a a very loving although unaccepted relationship and he uh eventually runs into nicholas holt's character kenny at a bar who had been kind of going there on purpose like very much so going there on purpose in an attempt to run into him and they ha- share some a night together not sexually necessarily although it's uh implied that it could have gone there but it, it never explicitly does and we get a moment where george is has a moment of clarity very explicitly and it has decided uh, not to uh, go through with his plan. And just as he makes this decision, uh, we have been shown throughout the whole film that he has a heart issue and he ends up having a heart attack at the end of the film and presumably dying. <laughs> uh, and we get to see a moment of him, you know, seeing his uh, part- his partner in his last moments of life. Did you say I missed anything major out in the summary? That sounded pretty thorough. Yeah. Thank you for that. I was really proud. I'm not usually so good off the cuff. I mean, we just watched the film. You said your summary and I wanted to cry again. So It's sad. (laughs) It is a sad film. Uh, Yeah, I mean, not shockingly. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that's something that, in addition to the trailer being very ambiguously gay, it's also Mm -hmm. very ambiguously about grieving is really given yeah. no indication of that i would say yeah i wouldn't say that i got a sense of loss watching that trailer it's yeah. more aesthetic and 
Julian more just yeah you know, she's way more apparent in it than yes. she is it's interesting that they play up the kind of straight aspects of it for, for, sure. for the trailer to try to get I guess asses in the seat in 2009 uh, it's also interesting that this wasn't didn't go up for best picture uh, which is wild and so I, I feel like like talking about this film though it's impossible like I feel like the place to start isn't really in any of the for myself at least isn't so much in the plot content but more mm. in this kind of like aesthetic and, and musical choices it's a Tom Ford movie it's all about mood yeah <laughs> well not all about mood but you know what I mean yeah, I mean, it was just something you said originally drew you to was the aesthetics. Yeah. Just seeing that trailer and, you know, having that mystery, like, what's this about? Uh, ends up being very surprising to me. Um, mm-hmm. For obvious, you know, from yeah. what we've talked about. Uh, but I think watching that movie, you know, with that strong aesthetic, it really, I guess it really added to my understanding of, like, the psychological elements mm-hmm. um, in terms of in terms of color. Yeah. Um, and saturation, for sure. Um, so for people who haven't seen it, uh, a choice that was made in the film that works wildly well, in my opinion, uh, I'm assuming you definitely agree, yes. is that <laughs> as George is experiencing different emotions and reactions, basically, to what is going on around him, there's a lot of play with saturation. So when we see him kind of alone in his more neutral somber moments or alone almost in, i think in general um it's very neutral tones everything's kind of a bit dark grays browns blacks Pretty um muted. yeah very muted um uh, and then when we see him experiencing moments of vibrancy of life that is reflected in the saturation of colors we're seeing sometimes it becomes you know, so oversaturated, everything, everyone's orange practically. Sure. And uh as he is really experiencing that kind of like vibrancy of life. What I, I just thought so we're on that topic. You know that that secretary of his, you know, he's looking at her and he focuses mm-hmm. on her lips and then she smiles and everything sort of brightens up. When he leaves, she's like, WTF, like, what, like, why was he looking at me so intently? Mm-hmm. And there's also that scene with that dog. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, he's he's sniffing the, the lady's dog. And then when when he leaves, she's kind of like, you know, like, what was that all about? He's acting very strange. Yeah. Like, looking at him from the outside, you're like, what's this guy, like, up to? Or what's he, what's going on with him? Oh, yeah. Because no one, no one knows, like, all the stuff that he's going through. Mm-hmm. Or people have weird inklings and don't know how to pick up on it, yeah. I feel like. But yeah, that the the color use is just beautiful. And something that Stefano and I definitely talked about a lot beforehand and then also during it to re experiencing it is the soundtrack. Which is Oh god. Yes. Amazing. Um the music's primarily by able okay, we're <laughs> oh, we're going for it. We're going for okay. it. Okay. Abel Korzhanovsky, we believe, and uh, Shigeru Omobayashi. And so we have these two people making these like, beautiful uh, arias and orchestrations. Sure. Right? Like, 
It's like you were saying, there's like that, there's that top layer of, of the slow strings. And there's like that, that more urgent layer, the under, I'm not a music person, but, uh, yeah, that, uh, I feel like it really just drives it yeah. forward. Like it, to me, which is kind of like so often portraying this kind of like the variation between the like urgent underlying feelings and then the like slow, unhurried string above was just, uh, it's like really made that like yearning and that mm-hmm. loss that he's experiencing and just like that oh god all those just like undercurrent feelings that are coming up and it was just ugh. hard agree and just oh my god Dang, chills. what is your favorite part of this movie i mean i always joke that i love the dog sniffing part um but actually let me see it's that part where kenny's initially following um George, because George is kind of, um, you know, he, he's Kenny's his student, so he's sort of like, oh, the student's following me. And Kenny's like really trying to get to know George. He's like, you know, do you want to get high? Mm-hmm. George is like, what? <laughs> You're my student. Um, but then he, there's that moment where um, George can see that Kenny's really trying to um, to know him, you know. Oh my god. My, I wrote it in my notes. It's somewhere in there. Oh, here we have, here it is. Kenny tells George, you know, I was watching you, you know, mm-hmm. and and then Kenny continues talking about like um what he observed in George, I believe. And at that point, you know, he was more saturated. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, George doesn't feel like anyone can see him. Mm-hmm. And that's like it's sort of like a moment where he's like, you know, this student who I didn't expect he's you know he's paying attention to like what's in, what's going on with me and he's interested in knowing more and um i thought that was very sweet yeah and relatable i hadn't really thought about that before i mean i hadn't, i mean i had thought about his emotions in that time but i i hadn't really thought about the invisibility aspect of it in that particular moment but i mean that word invisible comes up a lot in the movie yeah, yeah. uh in relation to his like, or not in relation, I guess, which is uh, in reaction to his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that moment where they first, it shows him and Jim first moving into their house, and there's lots of glass windows, and uh, they make some sort of reference, you know, Matthew Good starts kissing him, and he makes some sort of reference to, I thought you always said we were invisible. Mm-hmm clearly meaning because their like their relationship is invisible like that it's not known to the outside world um but then plays it up to be fun like no we're invisible we can do whatever we want you know (laughs) um no one's noticing because people are not looking and uh and then i know that it comes up again with nichols holt's character repeating that same phrase when they're at the end uh, towards the end and they're going in the water in the middle of the night uh just because they just go run out in the water into the ocean i don't know they're in la so means yeah <laughs> um, a beach of some sort so they go running off in the water at night and right as they're taking off their clothes to do so reassuring him kenny goes we're invisible i mean and you can see uh george physically react yeah. to that just momentarily uh and he moves past it but you definitely get that moment God, that Ugh. was a good connection. Wow. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm just thinking how heartbreaking that scene is when he finds out that Jim died. It hurts so much. Yes, the very, the very, it's like one of the earliest scenes in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's a close up of George's face, and you can see how he's reacting as he's talking to um, Mr. Ackerley, who's played by John Hamm. You remembered his name. Yeah, well, it, it's an iconic voice. I was like, well, what's his name? Mm. Gotta find out. So, Mr. Ackerley. Um, and you can see his face, you know, as he's getting this news from Mr. Ackerley. It's. It's it's great acting because he's not really saying much, right? He's not really. I mean, his voice breaks, but it's all in his eyes. The way his face, uh, you know, sort of unfolds as this news, you know, is also unfolding. Mm-hmm. And so many parts of the news, because it's mm-hmm. it's not just the news that he died. Oh, sure. It's the news that he died. It's the news that no one wanted to even call him and let him know. Mm-hmm. That his partner of 16 years, which we don't find out till later in the film how much time has passed, but it's 16 years. No one wanted to call him and let him know. He lives with this man, and no one wanted to call him and let him know. Like, except for, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. Mr. Ackerley does, but the family yeah. was just going to leave him completely unknowing. And I... For the listener, who actually I realize might not know this about me, I, I am... License in social work um and i don't know i don't record these episodes in order so i don't know if i mentioned <laughs> that before yet uh so if i already have uh sorry um but i am um, licensed in social work and i uh specialized in geriatric social work and so we did a lot of loss and grief actually i think my loss and grief book is literally directly next to me which is not intentional but yeah, there it's it literally right fucking here. <laughs> so I can read through this actual fucking textbook. I can give you the textbook feelings about uh, <laughs> my perspectives, rather. Because what I'm thinking of is ambiguous loss. For kids who are following along, we're reading The Last Dance, 10th edition, uh, Encountering Death and Dying by Despelder and Strickland. Read along, guys. Uh, we'll be doing popcorn reading. Yeah. Popcorn, Cat Kingsley. Yeah, so when we call your name, you read the next paragraph. You know what? I'm trying to think of disenfranchised grief. I'm thinking of oh. the wrong phrase this whole time. I fucked up. Oh, that's real. But I think I think we can I talk about ambiguous too. loss also, actually. Sure. But for a different reason, I'm just realizing. But what I meant to say this whole time, I'm a little rusty, even out of school for a little bit, is uh, to talk about disenfranchised grief. Uh, which is grief that is experienced in connection with a loss that is not socially supported or acknowledged through the usual rituals. When grief is disenfranchised, either because the significance of the loss is not recognized, or because the relationship between the deceased and the bereaved is not socially sanctioned, the bereaved person has little or no opportunity to mourn publicly. And then literally, in this textbook, in the textbook definition, the very first example is bereaved uh, partners of the same gender who have very little support or community resources or even have to hide their grief, um, who may not be allowed to take part in the traditional ways we would grieve. You know, like, he can't go to the funeral. He can't, you know, he's... That's taken away from him, that those grieving mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And that's just... Ugh. I mean, that's heavy. Like, because that's the reality, right, of many people even today. And that's kind of like what he would have stuck with. He would have been between, like, ambiguous loss right. if no one had ever called him. 
and then this, uh, which actually isn't where I was thinking of going with it later, but or or uh, this disenfranchised grief that he's currently experiencing, and it would have been either way that he would experience this grief, mm-hmm. but it's just, uh, it just hurts. It just, it really hurts, and mm-hmm. and Colin Firth really sells that. Oh, for sure. You know, I thought about it because like this film is very explicitly queer like yes it is a gay film <laughs> like in and out and mm. and i thought about that a little bit because i was like i feel like some people could watch this and be like oh this is about like a man who is gay and like emphasize that maybe more so which is true but also it's like not really about him being gay so much as it is about you know about that disenfranchised grief and how that is just experienced because of that time frame that he is in and how they really touch mm-hmm. on that like literally very explicitly in the film when he goes he's in the class and he goes on that i don't want to say rant but it is a rant like yes. about did you notice how they kept on focusing on that boy in blue yeah you... yes that's very interesting to me um you know when he talks about the invisible minority yeah. On that board and talks about, you know, the people like us. And it's kind of like, you know, you know, gay people are just normal people. Never and says gay people. And it's important to mention yeah, that. It does not. Because. It's all in images and mm-hmm. character interactions. Yeah. And I think, well, yeah, because it keeps cutting between Kenny and this other boy in mm-hmm. class. And he's giving this whole speech about fear and how we fear my, and that how the majority fears minorities. They fe- they have imagined fears that people are going to somehow take something away from them, and mm-hmm. that they are fault like imagined, you know. Right. And uh, and as he's saying this, he's looking at Kenny, who is perhaps gay, perhaps not, but is clearly paying attention to him, mm-hmm. and looking at him in kind of an not he's not looking at him in an alluring way, but he's looking at him like I am taking you in like i don't know how else to say that and then he's looking between him and this other boy who is looking like fearful yeah like oh my god are you trying to tell us that yeah this thing that i think you are and like it looks disgust kind of disgusted and fearful yeah i'd say so and you know i, I noticed like Ken kind of is looking at this other boy too it seems like you know he turns his head mm-hmm. and then he cuts to the other boy mm-hmm. um, yeah it's yeah it's a moment i'm looking at my my notes you know my notes are just um drawings so god okay that's uh-huh. another thing this is this is nothing to do with the the queerness of the film which is fine because we're just here to talk about the film in general but god can we like just the storytelling of this film is so intriguing like there's a moment really early on where he's just like it shows that Jim died, and then it's like him back in his regular life, and he's just sitting on the toilet. It's been aesthetically beautiful, but he's just right. sitting on the toilet, and he's like looking out the window at this family next door, and it's this very, very everyday music, but you have this gorgeous music, yeah, this gorgeous orchestra over it. Um, orchestra's maybe too much. It's not that many. I don't think it's that many it's people. Just a but bunch of strings, and uh... I'm just yeah, but um, you know, this just gorgeous elevated music because i feel like that's kind of i don't know i was like thinking about that a lot in this movie like because i mean what is made beautiful what what he 
chooses to make beautiful and what he doesn't. Because mm-hmm. so much of it is so gorgeous, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so these like everyday life moments of just like noticing the world around him are made just gorgeous right. in both the visual aesthetic and the the you know auditory. But then, like when we finally get to the scene where he's ostensibly trying to suicide, it's comical. Mm-hmm. It's there's not any of that aesthetic stuff going on. You're not seeing real changes in saturation. It's just him uncomfortable, unable to like figure it out. And it's not made beautiful. Like they, I don't really get the sense that even though it's like this kind of beautiful. Oh, I'm settling my life kind of film and like oh i'm gonna go join my partner kind of thing i never got the feeling that that was really glorified it was like what was glorified was the living of the mundaneness almost Mm -hmm. because you know like that scene with the family that you were talking about it's really just you know like the kids are playing in the yard the mom is helping them dig up some you know some silver i guess or Mm -hmm. something that was buried and then the dad is going to work and he's mad that the kids are ruining his yard right Mm -hmm. and and over that scene is like you were saying this you know this elevated music and you know george is sort of like appreciating Mm -hmm. you know there's a world that's um you know active around him and active is not like where to put it but Mm -hmm. um that's continuing yeah yeah, it's continuing on yeah and also, in some ways, a world he never got to, like, experience. Because it's sure. the whole family on the lawn. Sure. Meanwhile, he's kind of, like, hiding. Literally hiding, yeah. actually. <laughs> the, the mother looks at him, and he's like, oh, shoot, I got, you know. Yeah, he's literally hiding. Duck forward. And she waves to him, like, welcoming him into, like, yeah. that kind of world. And he's really removing himself from it in that oh. moment. Yeah, and, and and to me, that family kind of, uh, like you were saying, it kind of represents the world that he's not a part of you know it's it's like the classic american family right it's like you have your husband your your mm-hmm. wife you have the two sons you have and a daughter, daughter yeah. it's like the the two the two and a half kids type of deal mm-hmm. right and she invites him twice into that world too mm-hmm. um when, when they're at the bank she's like you know we'd love to have you over for dinner mm-hmm. he's like thanks but no so the other instance where i was thinking about ambiguous loss mm-hmm. Once I said it and realized it wasn't quite what I was trying to go for, <laughs> was uh, although I think I'm combining the two because I think my teacher talked about disenfranchised grief being like could be seen through a light as being like part of ambiguous loss. Um, like the disenfranchised man can make it ambiguous because mm-hmm. it's not something that's seen by anyone else, so mm-hmm. it's like weird because you can't openly acknowledge it. Anyways, though, what what I was thinking of was his interactions with Charlie, his friend. Okay. Who has the and it's actually from Charlie's perspective that I'm thinking about this. So Charlie, so they have the scene where he's drinking with his friend Charlie, who's played by Julianne Moore. Her aesthetic is amazing. You should just look it up. Like please, very very sixties, very mod. Like it's amazing. But they're drinking and then they're dancing to records. During which I want you all to know, Stefan and I stood up and danced. Well, they were, they were dancing jam. to Green Onion and dun, Green dun, Onions, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And then we sort of did that 60s uh, yeah, wiggle. Yeah, the, we did the 60s wiggle. It was great. 
But also, you were doing like the Mission Impossible scene right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was a it was a, a very versatile. Yeah, sort of. You can't do this. Kind of can't do this. And then you oh. get low to the ground. Anyways, um, yeah. But, so they have the scene, and they're laying on the ground, and they're, like, very intimate. Like, they're dancing really close to each other the whole time. Mm-hmm. Their faces are touching real time. We we know that they've slept with each other before, and that Jim had said, you know, Jim had said, well, if you sleep with women, why are you with me? He says, well, because I fall in love with men. And then he also says, you know, like, well, we all slept with women, didn't we? But, like, Jim's like, no, I'm a gold star gay. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, George is like, how modern. But anyways, um, <laughs> anyway, though, we have this moment and then Julianne Moore just fucking ruins it. Like, they probably could have made out, honestly, he looked like he might have been into it, but yeah. then she ruins it by fucking shitting all over his life. Like, she says, like, basically, I don't remember her exact words, but like, isn't it time for, like, you to have a real relationship? And she's like, yeah. you know, I know your time with jim was special and like that you loved him but like don't you want like a real relationship yeah she just calls his uh just like don't you think your relationship with the gym was a substitute for yeah. something something real yeah and that's when we find out that he's with him for 16 years yeah that's the moment that they chose to let us know that which mm-hmm. was because we really had no idea no. and she you know and he get, obviously blows up at her and then she recants it and you know, apologizes immediately and basically says, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just jealous. You know, yeah. I, I'm honestly just jealous. And this is where I'm bringing ambiguous grief because she has this weird, she has this weird ambiguous grief about their relationship because it's not something that they ever had, really. Like, they did have a relationship, but, like, she knew, which is known for a long time, they could never have been together. But she views the loss of that as like the loss of this entire life she had imagined for herself with mm-hmm. them being together and then having kids together and growing old and being in love and that's not what they have like they love each other but that's not it mm-hmm. you know and it's this like very uh, in- like odd dynamic not odd I don't want to call it odd I don't think it's odd so much I think it's probably something a lot of people experience but it's this very interesting dynamic in their friendship that it- his reaction to is always kind of fascinating to me but yeah yeah, she kind of got over that real quick. He, well, he, and then he ended up joking with her at the end before you know before mm-hmm. he left, which kind of leads me to believe like maybe this hasn't been. Maybe she said some stuff before. I'm not sure. I would um, think so. I don't think this is the first. She 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 has no filter when she's been drinking a little. Yeah, that's real. Going through my um, illustrations. Yeah, you drew. Okay, so Stefan brought us paper. Tell us what this paper. Yeah, so um, in the movie, George Falconer has his own uh, personalized stationery. It's you know, paper with his name printed on top. And I did some um, internet sleuthing, and I found that the paper was from a London company. I believe it's London, um, called Smithson that had you know prints their own paper and stationery and envelopes and notebooks. They also have other goods. Um, and so in advance of this podcast episode, I was like, you know what, let's, let's, let's turn the realness knob, you know, up a little bit and let's get some paper from this mm-hmm. movie that Kat and I love so much and let's take notes on it. 
Yes, because it's fucking like goddamn cardstock we're yeah. taking notes on. And it's even watermarked. I don't know if you can see here. Oh, shit. Smithson. Oh, my God, it is. Right? You are not fucking with me. S-M-Y-T-H-S-O-N, for those of you who would like to, to also to write on. I have this paper. It's nice paper, dudes. Right? It's cream paper. I shouldn't paper. say dudes, because people have different folks. Party people. Party people. Damn. That, I like whole, party okay. people. It's like a gender neutral. That's good. <laughs> for everyone who can't see us, we're literally just like holding paper up to the screen. Just being like, wow. Just looking at the watermark. And yeah, I just have like little notes. And then Stefan has drawings all over like of stuff that he saw in the movie. Like yeah. the dog and a book that we forgot to look up. Was there anything that you noticed this time watching that you hadn't noticed before? I mean, I noticed that the dogs look similar. <laughs> I think it's the same dog. You really fucking love this dog. Yeah, so there's the dog in the car that does not belong to George that he's sniffing. You know, mm-hmm. the one where the lady's like, oh. She, like, if you pay attention to her face when he's smelling it, it's just kind of like, it's kind of weird, weird. Right? He's overdoing it. Yeah, imagine, like, you know, let's say you had a dog and a man walked up and he wanted to appreciate your dog. He just takes your dog in his hands and just, like, <laughs> gets a good whiff of that, you know. Canine. And then it's like, smells like buttered toast. Right. <laughs> For people who don't know, um, so when Jim dies, he asks, he's like, what happened to the dogs? Mm-hmm. And uh, Don Draper's like, <laughs> Don Draper's like, oh, there was a dog with him, but he died. And he's like, oh, what about the other one? The female dog. The smaller female, the smaller dog. female dog. And he says, actually, I wrote down, oh, I haven't heard of another dog. I thought that was like a, an interesting moment. Like, yeah. <laughs> there's some ambiguous loss. Right. You don't know what happened. Like, I think they actually took the dog if it survived. And really, I hadn't really thought about because it because when because when you look at the scene, you know, he does just, say that his mom loves them. Yes. Also true. I missed that. Mm-hmm. I was talking about the opening scene. Um, you know, you just see Jim's body. You see. One dog's corpse. You don't see anything else. I mean, it could be in the car, but I just assumed. I assumed that part was a metaphor, and I was spending a long time trying to think about what it was a metaphor for. Like, I kind of figured it was like, kind of like not directly speaking necessarily. Like, it was kind of hard. I I have like a vague idea of what I'm thinking about it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I could describe it very well. Where it's kind of like, oh, like this dog has just like disappeared from this like scene of his death just kind of like George is just like completely removed from this grieving process or like the story that people will tell of Jim's life he's just completely missing you know like I've never heard of of this element of his life you know because like imagine what his obituary says Sure, George is not mentioned. Yeah, you know. Anywhere. I'm, imagine what people are saying at that at that service. Sure. He's completely removed from it. Actually, hadn't thought of that moment. What type of place George would have had in, um, I guess, Jim's life or legacy, and how people would remember Jim. Mm-hmm. He's completely it, lost from it. It's very upsetting. Right. I was thinking of that too when he goes to get the ring and he puts in the ring mm-hmm. and it fits on his pinky finger. Yeah. Because even like you couldn't even get a ring like you would wear in your ring finger. Like Ugh. Oh my god. It just it's a lot. It's heavy. <sighs> Oof. 
So, obviously, this movie has the kill your gays trope. That's clear. Both of them are dead. Yes. Both of the explicitly gay people are dead. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I was weird saying that in this movie because it's not like a movie... Like, I feel like Kill Your Gays... It's hard to make it apply. I mean, it isn't. I mean, it still applies, but, like, it's not the same as, like, Buffy, you know, where it's like, oh, everyone else gets to live, whatever. It's like, this is a story about grief in the first place, Mm -hmm. you know, like... And it's a story explicitly about queer grief in this aspect. Of course, portrayed by straight men, to my knowledge. As far as I know. I guess I'm never... I don't... I assume. I really don't know. I should have looked this up ahead of time. Which is like... I don't know. I don't know how I... Do feelings about that? Some people have very strong feelings about that, and I feel like mine are kind of... And, like... I have strong feelings about, like... I... You know, about like cis people playing transgender people, sure. oh, like or like, like I have some feelings about like cis men portraying transgender women. It's mm-hmm. like that's like no, sure. but I don't know if I have well, my thing super is, strong feelings about. I feel like I think about it more of the writing usually, but mm-hmm. I don't know. What was your thoughts? I don't mind it as much personally as a gay man. Um, however, I I do want to say you know I would like to see more gay men in you know different roles rather than you know just the gay man playing the gay character. I like to have more diverse roles for gay men. I remember reading this interview, I forgot which actor, but he was saying, you know, when once Hollywood finds out that you're a gay man, you know, you can't really play straight characters or, you know, there might be some casting difficulties that you might face. I don't know. It's a complicated issue. Can you find it? I just found something about Colin Firth talking about it. And he says, there might be risk for a gay actor coming out. The politics uh, of that are quite complex, it seems to me. If you're known as a straight guy playing a gay role, you get rewarded for that. If you're a gay man and want to play a straight role, you don't get cast. If you're a gay man wants to play a gay role, you don't get cast. Interesting. I think it needs to be addressed, and I feel complicit in the problem. I don't mean to be. I think we should all be allowed to play whoever, but I still think there are some invisible boundaries which are still uncrossable. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so that's just just a, just something to consider. I feel like not necessarily something I think is like my thought when I'm watching this, but I mean, but it is just something to think about. But yeah, Colin, God, Colin Firth is amazing in this movie, though. He, his acting is amazing. He looks amazing. His facial expressions are so realistic. And, <laughs> you make uh, it sound like he's animatronic. He really sells the role, right? Like it, uh-huh. it really felt like I was watching a, you know, like a biopic or a documentary. <laughs> God. In the sense of you know how he acted. Yeah, I think the last thing we have to talk about. Well, I guess any last thoughts before we go on to? Well, let me look through my illustrations. So we talked about the music, the dogs, the books. No, I had, I took note of this, but I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts about it. So, with regards to the saturation in the film, we see muted, mm-hmm. we see vibrant, but then we also have that scene in black and white when they're on the rocks. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that was, about that. I think that's the only scene that's in black and white. So, like, completely no color, but there's clearly some emo- there's clearly a lot of emotion in it. It's not like, you know, when, when it's kind of dull and George is feeling, um, 
you know, not not feeling vibrant, I guess, or not feeling like he's appreciating the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of the the choice to make that scene in black and white. Other than that, the photograph that the the memory is drawn on is a black and white photograph. Yeah, I don't know either. I was thinking about that same thing while watching it. And I think I've thought about it in the past, but, like, I don't... I honestly, like, I, I can't think of anything. I can't either. Like, other than it just literally being by that photograph. Yeah. Like, or, like, I don't know. Because, like, what was happening in that scene? They're talking about... That's when they're talking about Charlie and the mm-hmm. past with Charlie and stuff. And and I don't know. I don't know. I really had that thought, too. Because we... It's not like that's the only flashback we see. Right, exactly. We see other flashbacks. And although I mean, I suppose they're not triggered by an image as that one is. The other flashbacks are just thoughts Mm -hmm. um, more so. So I'm really not sure what to make of that, I guess. Um, Or is it just to highlight it as like a standout scene compared to the rest of the film in color? Yeah, it could be, but I can't really think of why that scene would be the kind of standout scene. Right. You know? I don't know if anyone has any thoughts. Please, please uh, get at me. I, um, you can either uh, tweet at me uh, to give us thoughts on it. Um, I believe uh, I know my Twitter handle. I this is actually the first. So for listeners, uh, behind the scenes secret. This is the first episode that <laughs> um, I'm recording. So if I seem like I don't know what I'm doing, it's because I really don't yet. Um, but you can contact me um, at Queers on Film on Twitter. Um, we have a Discord, which there'll be a link on the Twitter. Uh, I made a whole fucking Discord server for it, so come talk to us about it there. Um, or you can uh, email me, even. I made a fucking email address for it. It's queersonfilmpod at gmail.com. So if you have any thoughts about this movie, please contact me. I legitimately love when people reach out to me like every time people dm me or i guess i just said this is the first episode so i mean if you don't already know this i have another podcast (laughs) so it's not like but you know but i legitimately love hearing from people so even if you just want to share your own thoughts please do it but yeah i don't have any i don't think i have an answer for that so let's go on to the russo test i guess which this one totally passes i think so so uh, the Russo test, if you know about the Bechdel test, it's kind of like that. It's inspired by that, actually. Um, but here are the questions. We'll go through them one by one. So, the film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> there's two that are like, we are gay, we are gay men, and then there's other characters that are perhaps. Sure. But they're definitely a couple that are very identifiably. Agreed. The next one is that character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity, i.e. they are comprised of the same sort of unique character traits commonly used to differentiate straight uh, or non-transgender characters from one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, You know, the first thing that you notice about George is that he's a man who is, you know, very well put together. He's very ordered. Meticulous. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You you take one look at his desk... um, you know, it's kind of like looking at those aesthetic photos where you know, things like are laid out. A, 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 like a like a muted color. It looks like a Wes Anderson setup yes. almost, except not in the same aesthetic, but like 
in the literal physical layout of stuff. And like, or you get that scene, you know, you were listening to the books before. Mm -hmm. You get that scene where uh, Jim and George are sitting across from each other reading and George is reading Metamorphosis and uh, Jim sheepishly shows that he's reading Breakfast at (laughs) Tiffany's and they're like teasing each other and stuff and their personalities are very different. And we get a lot about George's personality, Mm -hmm. I feel like. Yeah. And not just in relation to Jim or to Charlie or to his sexuality, right. just like in general. Just his essence as a character. Mm-hmm. For instance, he loves dogs. He does love dogs. He, he loves like... sniffing dogs. He loves their smell. Mm-hmm. He's here for it. <laughs> and I am here for it. Yeah. The LGBTQ character must be tied into the plot in such a way that the removal would have significant effect, meaning... Uh, they are not to simply provide colorful commentary, paint urban authenticity, or perhaps most commonly set up a punchline. The character must matter. Without a single man. I mean, there is no story without it. It would just be the. <laughs> yeah, it's just the. <laughs> you know, we haven't talked about that title. I haven't really thought about it. I like. Let's talk I just, about it. I just realized there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Well, because a single man. Implies a very different thing than a widow or a widower or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's widower for for men or whatever. It's a weirdly gendered word for no reason. I just used widows for any gender, but well, we'll I keep doing it. It's gender neutral now. We're Moving forward, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Widow New is gender neutral. Widower is too complicated. Yes, twenty syllables as well. But no, well, because that really comments on like a single man. And that also really shows how that trailer is so fucking misleading. Because yeah. seeing a single man, seeing him like making out with all these different people, is so different than what's actually happening. Right. I'm actually pretty pissed about that trailer. The more I think about it, it's very misleading. It's. I mean, I guess it was. So it's 2009. But it's 2009. It's not like it's like 1962. <laughs> yeah, uh, but which is when the right? That's when it takes place. Yeah. yeah. But no, a single man. Is like how the world sees him. Mm-hmm. He's just a professor who's like a single man. As far as people know, he's never been married. He's never sure. been in this. Really, he had a roommate. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. People that's how people view him. But he he's not a single man. Right. He says it multiple times. He says at least once explicitly. You know, like if he hadn't died, we would still be together. You know, he's he's a widow. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of like what you were saying before about. How people view Jim, I'm sure they viewed him as a single man also, mm-hmm. right? He died single. A single he's a single vet. Yeah. Veteran that is not veterinarian. Veterinarian. Yeah. <laughs> Which, dogs. <laughs> that's why I had to specify. But yeah, that title. What a choice. I mean, yeah. that's from the book, because this movie is based on a book. By, uh, by Christopher, Christopher Isherwood. Jinx. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, any any last words you want to give to our audience? I know. Yeah, give them your Twitter. Oh, my my Twitter is Stefan Lawn. So S T E F A N and Lawn, like like your yard, like your front lawn, like your front lawn. Stefan is really good at Twitter. At the time of recording, you only made your Twitter again like what? Really recently. November nineteenth, twenty nineteen. And we're recording on 12-7-2019. First Twitter, first podcast episode. Yeah. Lots of firsts. Yeah. Mm. Your Twitter's so good, though. Like, Thank you. Like, you're really good at tweeting. 
And everyone should follow Stefan. But yeah. I made a tweet about what, Furbies. You did make a tweet about Furbies. Gothic sensibility. You do have a lot you do have gothic sensibilities. So Yeah, I love it. Anyway, um so like I said, you can follow uh this blog on not this blog. Oh my god. What is this? Uh, it's a podcast. If, oh my gosh. Boy. You can follow this podcast, because it's the year two thousand nineteen, as we just addressed, um, at Queers on Film. You can follow me personally uh, at Absolina, that is at E-P-S-I-L-I-N-A. And uh, you can also listen to my uh, another show that I am a co-host of, Summer Twilight Book Club, that's on the Orange Grows Network. Yeah, come on the Discord, please. I made it and I really want to talk to people. So if you go to the Twitter, it's there, or if you just search Queers on Film Discord, I think it'll come up. <laughs> I'll be on there. Cat will be on there. It's gonna be a party. Yeah, it's gonna be a fucking party, y'all. Anyways, uh, thanks for listening. I don't have a sign out at this point, so just like s- s- stay gay, baby. I don't know. <laughs> stay gay, baby. <laughs>